Well, good morning, Grace Community Church. It is great to be with you and invite you to open God's Word and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, the date was February 4th. February 4th, 1555. And the pastor, John Rogers, had been languishing in the rat-infested and disease-infested Newgate Prison in the city of London. He'd been there for over a year. His, uh, his health was broken. Uh, his body was frail. And on this particular morning, February 4th, 1555, uh, the prison door swung open, and the guards were there to usher him out of his prison cell beyond the walls of Newgate Prison. And they proceeded to escort him to an open green in the city of London known as Smithfield. And there the executioner awaited him. Along the way, it's hard to fathom, along the way his wife and 11 children were waiting for him. He hadn't seen them in over a year. He had never set eyes on the youngest of the 11th because he was born a couple of months after he was arrested and imprisoned. And so through tear-filled eyes, they called out their final farewells and goodbyes, and he arrived at Smithfield, and he was granted one last opportunity to recant. And apparently his reply was simply this, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. That was it. That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. And they proceeded to chain him to the stake, set the bundles of wood around him, and set him ablaze. And Pastor John Rogers became the first martyr of the reign of Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary. Many more would follow, uh, names like Hugh Latimer, Thomas Kramer. Many more would flee to the continent, among them John Knox. And there they would uh, wait for brighter days. So we're celebrating the Reformation. We've been celebrating the Reformation all month. And we have been doing so by proclaiming five solas, right? I'm assuming most of you have been here most of these Sundays. And so let me fill you in, the few who haven't, the five solas of the Reformation. Scripture alone It's number one. Faith alone, obviously number two. Christ alone, grace alone, and the fifth and final, final sola, God's glory alone. It might interest you to hear that the Reformers would never have expressed it like that. None of them did. You can go back and read their writings and you'll not find one mention of the five solas. The phrase was actually coined, the paradigm invented by a Lutheran, late 1800s, early 1900s. But I am fully convinced that if John Rogers were alive today, if any of the Reformers were with us today, and they heard the five solas as they have been preached here this past month, 
it would resonate in their hearts. And they would recognize the five solas as yes, capturing the essence and expressing the heartbeat of Reformation teaching. So befalls me to bring it all to a conclusion, a rousing end, by considering with you, proclaiming to you, soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. The title for this sermon, it's right there in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, you'll see it in the middle of the 11th verse. There Paul makes reference to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Do you see it? Fascinating phrase. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It isn't merely the gospel. It isn't merely the gospel of God. It isn't merely the gospel of the blessed God. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It begs an obvious question, why? The answer resides in verses 15 through 17. Follow along as I read this portion of God's Word for us. The saying, writes the Apostle Paul, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the title for this sermon, again, return back with me to the 11th verse, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Why does Paul speak like this? Why this emphasis on the glory of the blessed God? Again, we find a threefold answer in verses 15 through 17 as we try to unpack it and get our minds around it as we attempt to join in with the Reformers and proclaim God's glory alone. We zero on in on this particular phrase and we discover that it is pointing us to three precious realities. The first is this. The glory of God shines forth in the gospel. And so it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Precisely because the glory of God shines forth in the gospel. And so you think of those days, rare here in Texas, but you think of those cloudy days when perhaps late afternoon, the cloud just begins to break ever so slightly, you know? And the sun is there in all its brilliance and glory behind that cover of cloud. But the clouds just begin to break and separate ever so slightly. And then you see it. Those beams of sunlight that just penetrate through those openings. And there they are shining across the entire landscape. And so this is the gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The glory of God, it is revealed in the gospel. That is, as we look at the gospel, we catch glimpses of these rays of light 
these beams of transcendent glory penetrating the darkness. And there are actually four in these verses. The first is this. Paul tells us in verse 15, Christ came into the world to save sinners. There is the first beam of divine glory in the gospel that Christ came into this world to save sinners. And so there's dad on a Tuesday morning rushing about. He's got to get out the door, get to work. He passes through the kitchen and there's two-year-old Tommy sitting at the table. And he sees his dad. Immediately the arms go out, hug. He wants to hug his dad before his dad heads off to work. Problem is this. Tommy's just finished breakfast. Yogurt. Berries of every conceivable kind. Granola. Toast with peanut butter and jelly. Half of it is on his chubby hands, chubby cheeks, in his hair. Dad's got a white shirt on, jacket and tie. There's a problem, and the problem has to be dealt with. Now, that is a pitiful comparison, absolutely pitiful. But you know exactly where I'm going with this. There is a problem. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul, in all of his literary eloquence, he describes this problem back in verse 9. Look with me at what he declares there, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not laid down for the righteous. Well, who's righteous? Who's just? He tells us elsewhere there is none righteous, none just. No, not one. Meaning what? The law is laid down for us. The law is laid down for everyone. And what does the law show us? What does the law reveal? He immediately launches into three couplets. Three couplets. The first term is stated negatively and then stated positively. But four, here's the first couplet, the lawless. What does that mean? It means to be disobedient. The second couplet, for the ungodly. What does that mean? It means to be a sinner. The third couplet, for the unholy. What does that mean? It means to be profane. It corresponds with the first table of the law. The first four commandments of the Decalogue. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make an image or a graven idol for yourselves. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, you will remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. There is the law of God. And as we read those four commandments, what do we realize? We realize it as Paul states it here in black and white. We are lawless and disobedient. We are ungodly and sinners. We are unholy and profane. What does he add? Look at that, the end of verse 9. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. What's the first, fifth commandment? You shall honor your father and mother. And then what does he go on to say? Right at the end of verse 9, for murderers. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Into verse 10, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. What is the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. And then what does he say? Enslavers. What is the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. And then he wraps it up, liars and perjurers. What is the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness. He's missed one. What's the tenth? You shall not covet. It goes without saying, doesn't it? That if we're guilty of all this, 
That if this is our condition, our status before a holy God, at the root of it all resides this covetous spirit, this great desire and impulse of the human heart. I will be God. Oh, but here's the good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. As we sing, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free how it goes, right? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. There is the first beam of divine glory in the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Here is the second beam. It takes us into verse 16. Christ abounds in mercy. Paul is writing autobiographically. He references God's mercy right at the end of the 13th verse. I received mercy. And now he goes down this road again at the outset of verse 16. But I received mercy. God abounds in mercy. We see this in, the G in Jesus Christ. And this is a glimpse of one of those radiant beams of glory that penetrate the clouds and the darkness. I was reminded recently of an illustration, a sermon illustration I heard Quite a few times as a young boy growing up, I grew up in a church where we didn't have a pastor and we relied on itinerant preachers. And so the same stories and illustrations would kind of make the rounds. And this was a favorite one that I heard a few times, but I remember hearing it on one occasion and it had a, a, a deep and profound impact upon me. And so the story is told of this young man. He grows up, single, child alone, only child, and he grows up with his mom and dad, and his mom and dad love him and provide for him and protect him and uh, lavish, no other way of stating it, lavish their love upon him. And as he becomes a teenager and as he's at the, the point of adulthood, his heart, for whatever reason, hardens toward them. No other way to express it, just hardens toward them. And the resentment deepens, and the bitterness takes hold. And finally, the day comes when he yells at the top of his lungs, I want nothing to do with you. You're dead to me. As a matter of fact, I hate you and despise everything you stand for. And he rushes out the front door, slamming the door behind him. He travels halfway across the states, and on the other side of the states, he indulges himself, gives himself to a life of sin and unimaginable vice. And this goes on for some time. The years pass. Never a letter home. Never a phone call home. And the years pass. And then suddenly, almost imperceptibly, the cracks start to form in his heart. And these cracks eventually transform into huge crevices. And he's racked with guilt. He's racked with guilt the way he treated his parents. The decisions he had made, the choices that he alone was responsible for. And, and, and accompanying these deep crevices in the inner recesses of his heart, there is this, this, this initially this faint inkling, which begins to grow and grow until it's keeping him awake at night. There is this longing for home, 
a longing to go back. He knows he's burned the bridges. He knows there's no way back. And time passes and passes, sleeplessness, this angst that will not go away, overcome, overwhelmed by his sense of sin, and just this undeniable longing to go home. He finally takes paper in hand, and he scribbles off a few sentences. Mom, Dad, I don't know where to begin. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come on the train. train passes through town. And the train passes right behind the yard of the house. He knows it. He saw the train pass many times. And I'm guessing you don't want anything to do with me, but if you could find it in your hearts to, uh, you know, at least meet with me. Um, hang, hang a dishcloth from the clothesline. Just hang a dishcloth from the clothesline. And if it's there, I'll get out and come visit for a bit. If not, I'll, I'll just keep going and I understand. The time finally came for him to catch his train, and he traveled to his hometown. The sights became familiar, and he recognized the house was coming up quickly. I mean, his head is pounding. His heart is beating. His palms are sweating. His head is down. His eyes are closed. And he finally looks and just takes a peek out the window at the last moment. And to his amazement, there are dishcloths strewn across the clothesline. There are dishcloths on every branch of every tree. There are dishcloths covering the old swing set, dishcloths enveloping the shed, dishcloths hanging from every window, the eaves trough, the chimney itself, all communicating one simple, simple message. Son, just come home. Just come home. I'll tell you something right now, my friend. God is far more willing to be reconciled with you than you are with Him. Far more willing to be reconciled with you than you are with Him. Paul declares it. He declares it to the Corinthians. He makes it clear. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through us. I stand before you right now, an ambassador of Christ, God making His appeal through me to you right now. On behalf of Christ, I implore you, be reconciled to God. And He is more willing to be reconciled to you than you are to Him. You young ones, Listen to this, please, the six-year-olds, the seven-year-olds, you teenagers who have it all figured out, listen to this, please. Those of you in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, maybe even some in their 60s here this day, you've been playing church your whole life, but you've never really got it. Oh, be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. Your comeback might be, that, that sounds wonderful, how? What, what does that mean? Two sentences. That's it. Two sentences out of Psalm 51. The first sentence is what? Simply this. Against you and you only have I sinned. That's it. There's your starting point right there. Against you and you only have I sinned. You see the Lord Jesus Christ entering the Garden of Gethsemane. And you see Him off by Himself prostrate on the ground. And you see, as it were, the great 
sweat drops of blood falling to the ground. And you hear that heart-penetrating cry. If it is possible, if it is possible, not my will, your will be done. Let this cup pass from me. And then you see him arrested. You see him mistreated. You see him at that mock trial as a lamb led to the slaughter. You see him carrying that cross to Calvary's mount, nailed to that cross, breathing his last as he hangs there, a curse suspended between heaven and earth, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my friend, you understand it's your sin that nailed him there. Your sin, my sin that caused all that. It was my sin that held him there. Isn't that how the song goes? Until it was accomplished. There we have the Lord Jesus Christ becoming sin on our behalf, becoming a curse on our behalf. Oh God, I have sinned against you and you alone. And the second little sentence is simply this. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Against you and you only have I sinned. Wash me on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Christ abounds in mercy. It is a beam of divine glory that we behold only in the gospel. The third beam of divine glory is this, still in verse 16. Christ displays perfect patience. Again, Paul is speaking autobiographically. He's he's sharing his own testimony. And he tells us that Christ displayed such perfect patience toward him. And so how had Christ shown Paul patience? Well, think of Paul as he stands by as his fellow Jews, religious leaders, crush in, cave in the head of Stephen with stones. There's Paul standing there holding their cloaks. Think of him as he travels from region to region, town to town, house to house. What's he doing? He's arresting Christians, forcibly dragging them before the magistrate, hounding them, hunting them, and enjoying it. Who is this pompous, arrogant little piece of dust who dares to trot upon God's green earth? Oh, Christ displayed perfect patience to the Apostle Paul. What about some of you? I know some of your testimonies. Christ has displayed such perfect patience. I know what you're thinking to yourself. What about you, Stephen? We're not talking about me right now. We're talking about you. (laughs) God has displayed such perfect patience in your life. For those of you who aren't Christians, you imagine the kind of patience Christ has displayed to you to this moment in your life. And do not mistake it, Paul tells us in Romans 2, it serves but one purpose, to lead you to repentance. The third beam of divine glory. Christ displays perfect patience. And there's one more. Right at the end of verse 16, Christ imparts eternal life to all who believe. I've shared this this with you before, I'm sure, because I make a lot of use out of it. It was Horatius Bonner who penned it 
I want it on my tombstone. It is simply this. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life. Another's death. I stake my whole eternity. As I stand on this great isthmus of eternity. With heaven and hell beckoning with eternal life and eternal destruction, just waiting beyond the grave. I can say it no better. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. It's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect life he lived, a perfect life reckoned to me, counted to be mine, when I become one with him through faith, whereby I become righteous in the sight of God because I am knit together with the righteous one. And a death that is not mine, Christ's death upon Calvary's cross, as he hangs there and he drinks up every last drop and dreg of that cup of God's wrath and indignation, a death I did not die, but because I made one with him through faith, God reckons that crucifixion, he reckons that death and burial to be mine. And upon this I stake my whole eternity. The promise of eternal life that beckons that upon another's life, upon another's death, Christ's life, Christ's death, I stake my whole eternity. Four beams. You can see it, right? That summer's day after the storm, the clouds begin to break, and those beams just penetrate the clouds and hit the ground. Oh, Paul gives us these four beams of the divine glory as revealed in the gospel, making the gospel what? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The second reason it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God is this. The glory of God is the foundation of the gospel. It takes us into verse 17. Look at what Paul says there concerning our God. He is, notice the description, He is the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Here we come face to face with God's essential glory. Here we come face to face with the resplendent glory of the very nature of God, who He is. And Paul emphasizes that He is the only God. And so this God in relation to time, who is He? He is the King of ages, eternal. This God in relation to life, who is He? Immortal. He has life in Himself. This God in relation to space, place, who is He? He is the invisible God who fills all things but is limited by none. Eternity is the perfection whereby He has neither beginning nor end. King of ages. Immortality is the perfection whereby He has neither increase nor decrease. Immensity is the perfection. Invisibility whereby He has neither bounds nor limitations. As He proclaimed to Moses of old, as Moses is there prostrate, groveling on the ground before the burning bush, 
And this unparalleled declaration comes to Moses, and it echoes down over the centuries of time. You want to know my name? I am who I am. I am. Eternality fills all ages and yet is above all ages. I am fills all spaces, places, yet is above all place. I am who I am. Absolute immutability, unchangeableness, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His resplendent glory, this glory, the foundation of the gospel. Why do I say it is the foundation of the gospel? Just jump back to Paul's opening comment in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What makes it trustworthy? Because Paul wrote it. What makes it deserving of full acceptance? Why is this a truth you can bank on? Why is this a truth you can trust in? Why is this something you can hold on to, grab hold on to, not be moved, not be shaken? Why is this saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Why is this saying trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? Because it is rooted in the eternal glory of God Himself. He is the King of ages, eternal. He is immortal, life in Himself. And He is invisible, pure Spirit who fills all things, yet is limited to none. And He does not change. He knows nothing of succession of time. He knows nothing of past or present. He dwells in one indivisible point of eternity. And in the eternal counsels of His will, He has determined to save those who believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. And that makes this a trustworthy statement. It makes it a believable statement that the gospel is rooted in the unchangeable character, as we read in Hebrews. The gospel is rooted in the unchangeable character of God's purpose. We sing it. I might need some help with this one. Kevin, you're right there. Immortal, invisible. Right out of this text. God only wise. In light, inaccessible. I'm getting lots of nods. That's good. Hid from our eyes. Most gracious, most glorious. The ancient of days. This, is, this one just is beautiful. Pavilioned in splendor. And girded. There's a good word. Girded with praise. Immortal, invisible. God only wise. In light, inaccessible. Hid from our eyes. Most gracious, most glorious. The ancient of days. Pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Why is that the root of the gospel? Simply this. He is not a man that he should lie. And he is not a man that he should change his mind. The glory of God is the foundation of the gospel. And why Paul can state it emphatically, unapologetically, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the third reason, the third reason why the gospel is the gospel of the glory of 
of the blessed God. And it is this. The glory of God is the purpose of the gospel. Now steady here. I've turned a corner rapidly. We have to this point been speaking of the glory of God. That is His nature, His essence, His being. That which is unchangeable, who He is. Now when we speak of the glory of God as the purpose of the gospel, we are referring to our response. That is, that glory which we give to Him. It is precisely what Paul exclaims in the 17th verse. To, to. This is his response then, his response to that glory revealed in the gospel to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we give him all the glory. We give him all the glory by confessing him. We give him all the glory by serving him. We give Him all the glory by praising Him. As George Swinnick writes, if God is so incomparably excellent, then what praise, what honor, what glory should we give to Him? We are unable to give Him all the glory that is due His name. But we can give Him all that our mind, heart, and affections have to offer. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Now, Kevin Day Young, I heard him say this just a, a short time ago. He coined this phrase, uh, the, the monotonous joy of infancy. The monotonous joy of infancy. And what he means by that is, is how enamored little ones are with experience and they, they derive the same joy from an experience no matter how many times they go through it. So, yeah, that, you know, I think back to playing peekaboo with, uh, with Emma, Laura, others. And you sit down, they're in their high chair or on the bed and whatever, and you put your hand in front of your face or a blanket, you know, when they're two years of age, and uh, maybe a stuffed animal, a teddy bear or something, you put it in front of your face and then peekaboo. What kind of response do you get? That toothless Grin, right? The eyes just wide open and the, gir and, and, and the giggles. And you do it again. Exact same response. And you do it again. Same response. You start to walk away. What do they say? Again. And you do it again. Same response. Again, same response. Finally, you just have to give up and walk away. And pretend you don't hear them, right? It is the monotonous joy of infancy. You know what our problem is? We grow up. Nothing thrills us anymore. Just get bored. Everything just becomes so routine, normal, casual. Oh, to come here Sunday after Sunday and be confronted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God and to experience the monotonous joy of infancy as we are reminded once again of the glory of God's power the glory of His wisdom, the glory of His goodness as dispensed to us in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our only worthy response is what? What was the theme for today? Soli, Deo, Gloria. God's glory alone. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You 
for the good news of salvation. We praise you for the work accomplished that Christ upon the cross proclaimed it is finished. It is fulfilled. And we praise you for the ongoing work of salvation that we have a great high priest who has ascended to glory and lives forevermore to make intercession on our behalf. And we praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and grants illumination and inclination whereby we can understand the truths of your word Apply them deep within and live lives brought into conformity with your will for us. We are a privileged people and we give you thanks for the gospel. Thanks for your glory as revealed in it. And this day we do ascribe to you all praise and all honor and all dominion. And we do it through the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.